Uh, Genesis chapter 43 this morning as we continue uh, the wonderful story of Joseph and uh, now his father Jacob is involved and all of his brothers uh, are involved. Uh, They're down in Egypt and the brothers have gone back to the promised land and uh, the story as the story goes here they're going to make their way back down to Egypt. So there's this up and down uh, going on here in our story. So in chapter 43 uh, the story begins uh, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father, Jacob, that is, said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Speaking of Benjamin, If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, We will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that is Jacob, as God changed his name to Israel, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in another... Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and I will, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned. Twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man and may uh, he send back your brother may he send your other brother and Benjamin and as for me if I am bereaved of my children I am bereaved so the man took his took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph when Joseph saw Benjamin with them he said to the steward of the house bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid. Notice the the text makes a distinction between the man uh, and the men. Were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came down uh, and we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We did not know who put our money in our sacks. He, that is the servant, replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. 
Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Remember, he had been put in, basically, uh, he was a, a hostage until he would come back. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph. Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, five times sort of a round number uh, in the ancient world. And they drank and were merry with him. And all of God's people say to these wonderful words, Amen. Well, you might have heard the phrase, it's feast or famine. It's feast or famine. Uh, I'm not sure where, where you may have heard that, that phrase, uh, but uh, for me, it's always associated with sports. And so uh, it's feast or famine. Uh, say Mike Trout, you know, is like, he's over 20. You know, he hasn't, hit, he hasn't gotten a hit in, in three weeks. It's feast or famine, you know, or he's, say, you know, 12 for his last 20, including six home runs, right? It's either feast or famine. It's either you do nothing or you do everything. Uh, in basketball, you know, you're like 0 for 10, right? You miss every shot or maybe you're 10 for 10. It's, it's either feast or famine. It means you can either be doing as poorly as you possibly can do uh, you're, or you're doing as well as you possibly could do. You're cold or you're hot uh, in sort of sports parlance. Uh, but uh, our sermon title today is From Famine to Feast. It's the complete opposite. Our, our story here from Genesis 43, the story of Joseph and uh, his father and his brothers, uh, it's about this famine, first and foremost, but ultimately it's about a feast. And the feasting is, again, it's made possible because of how gifted the Lord had made Joseph. Uh, he gifted him with wisdom, uh, with perseverance, with faith in the Lord. And so this entire story is made possible, we might say, humanly speaking, because of Joseph. Uh, but ultimately, of course, it's made possible because of God and God's gifts. In fact, there's still a waterway in Egypt today that's called the Waterway of Joseph, and this is one of the, the ancient canals that uh, was built in the days of Joseph in Egypt. 
And so every, every Easter or every uh, Christmas or maybe, you know, whenever you t- turn on the History Channel and they have some, uh, some, some new expose about why the, the Red Sea was never parted, uh, the Exodus never happened, the Israelites were never in Egypt, uh, you just remind them to go onto their Google map and to find uh, Bar Yusef, which is the waterway of Joseph. It's been named that for thousands of years. And so Joseph was this wise man, this very gifted man, uh, this great administrator. And so he, be, he was the one that the, that the Pharaoh put in charge. Uh, and they have food because of him. And so it was from famine in those days to feast. Now, Genesis, of course, chronicles for us not just the beginning of all things, as, as we saw way back when in chapter 1 and 2, uh, but it also chronicles for us, as, we, as we've been spending most of our time in Genesis, uh, on the beginning of God's plan to save sinners, beginning with the Israelites. Uh, and we saw that redemptive promise way back when in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God was one day going to send uh, a seed or a child, a son uh, of the woman, and that son, that seed, that was, gonna, was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So just as the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, uh, so one day there was going to be a son who would come to crush uh, the serpent's seed, uh, his son, his spawn, as it were. That's the great promise of redemption from the book of Genesis. Uh, and that, can, uh, that, that, that promise continued. It continued uh, from that, fi- that, that famine of sin to the feast of redemption, uh, when God in the days of Noah, there was a famine of righteousness, yet there was one man, Noah, and because of him, there were eight people from the whole face of the earth put into an ark, into a boat. God sent a flood of judgment, as I prayed this morning, upon the whole world and brought salvation. He brought a famine of, uh, uh, from a famine of, of death and sin to a feast of salvation. Uh, and uh, that's continued throughout the whole story of Abraham, Isaac, Uh, now Jacob, and uh, especially his son, Joseph. Despite what seemed to be a famine of hope in Jacob's days, he was totally unfit, we saw, to be a, humanly speaking, unfit to be a vessel of salvation. Uh, Despite his brother chasing him down and wanting to kill him, despite his father-in-law Laban persecuting him, uh, for, for 14 long years, then he added a few more on top of that, so 20 years just to find a wife. The feast of God's amazing grace continued. Our story continues this theme of God's grace, of the, of the feast of God's grace. Despite the famine of our human sins, despite the famine of totally sinful people with whom God has to work, you and me, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, God is grace, uh, gracious, and his grace, we see in Genesis, again, this morning, is invincible. His grace is irresistible. His grace is immutable. God has a plan to save, and he's going to save his people no matter what the devil tries to do. And so his plan comes to pass upon the beneficiaries of it. Here it's Joseph and his brothers and his whole family, and of course we are the recipients, ultimately, of that grace of God. We are unworthy We are unfit. We are sinners. But here's God. Here's God who saves us. As I told our kids, you know, the the feeling that we should have as sinners who know that Jesus forgives us of our sins, he washes our sins, is to be happy, is to be joyful, is to be full of thankfulness that God has saved me of all people. Me of all people. So let's turn to our story this morning. Notice the the outline. Uh, There there are just two points there uh, on the back of that sermon notes page. Uh, first of all, we see the famine that is in 
Canaan, or the promised land. There's this famine again. Now the famine was severe in the land. The famine was great in the land. Now, obviously, there was a famine of food. That's what a famine is. It's a famine of food here. Uh, We've seen that already. We saw last Sunday from Psalm 105 that there was a famine in the land. And and, and famine is, of course, uh, the result of uh, meteorological and... and, uh, uh, and uh, climate issues, there's not enough rain, or, there, or maybe there perhaps was flooding, and so they couldn't grow their food. There was less of a harvest than normal. Uh, it was too hot, it was too cold. There are all kinds of factors that lead into famine. Uh, and so there was a famine in the land, in the land of Egypt and in the land of promise. But according to Psalm 105, who sent the famine? God sent the famine. Now, did, did that mean that God sent the famine sort of you know, in a one-to-one correspondence? No, it means that he used all those meteorological uh, and, and, and climatological issues to bring a famine on the land. Why? Because he wants to bring his people down to Egypt to save them. But now the famine is even worse. It's even worse. It was bad at first, and so Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt, the last place they would want to go to find food, but they needed to find it there because they heard that there was this man who was wise and who had stored up food. Send money uh, to, to him. Bring food back so that we don't starve. And so Jacob was, was thinking rightly because God had promised to, to continue his line. They needed food, of course, to survive. But now the famine is doubly worse. Why? Why is it worse? Because, again, the, the famine is the way that God is going to get his people from point A to point B. God doesn't treat us like robots. We're not little marionette characters that he simply just takes us and and moves us from one place to another. He takes them from the promised land down to Egypt. He's got to get them there. Now he could, as Almighty God, as El Shaddai, just do it. But God uses all the, the secondary causes I talked about last Sunday to bring them there, which was Joseph's wisdom, Jacob sort of sobering up, coming to his senses, there's a famine. They have no food. They need food. God made our bodies that we got to eat or else we die. God uses all that stuff to bring them down. So he wants to get them down. He needs to get them down to save them, to keep his promise, to keep his promise, to make this, the, the Israelites like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the air. And so there they are. One thing that we're seeing in the story of Joseph, again, is uh, that... As bad as things might be, as bad as things might even look to be, as bad as things might seem to be, there's always hope because there's God. There's always hope because there's God. We we quote that verse so often that all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And in our story, we're seeing what that looks like. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just a, a pious platitude we put on a, on, a, on a Hallmark card when someone is grieving the loss of, of a loved one. It helps in, in those times, but that's, it's more than that. It's more than that. Here's what it looks like. They're desperate for food. They're going to die. God works all things for good. The famine was so severe. All the bread the sons of Jacob had had bought down in Egypt, it's run out, as verse 2 says. They have nothing left to eat. And so Jacob commands his sons, once again, go down to Egypt, buy some more bread, some more grain to make the bread. 
Yet Judah, notice, reminds his father that this man, Joseph, warned them, do not come back into my land without that younger brother that you spoke about, Benjamin. Remember, J- Jacob kept his youngest son back. The rest of them went down. The ten of them went down. But he kept his youngest. So there's a dire need here, desperate need here of food. There's a famine of food, bread, sustenance. But more than that, there's a famine here of hope. That's what we see most of all with Jacob. There's a famine of hope. Notice his attitude. Verse 6, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you have another or that you had another brother? Right? He, he takes this as a personal Affront. Why did you say it? Why? Could you not have just said there's my dad back in the promised land and, and we're, we, we are all sons of one man and we've come down here to get some food and why did you have to mention that I had a younger son, uh, 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 that you had a younger brother? Why? Why have you treated me so badly? His sons try to reason with their dad. They recount all that Joseph had said but you just can't really reason with someone who's hopeless, can you? What's the best medicine for a hopeless person? What's the best encouragement for a hopeless person, loved ones? I, I would say it's the gospel. The gospel. And notice Judah. Judah's the messenger of this good news. He steps up and he says in verse 8 and 9, Send the boy with me. We will arise, go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And then notice verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. Why is it so surprising what Judah says? Why is it so unexpected what Judah says here? I will be a pledge of his safety. Send the boy with me, he says. Why is it so surprising? Well, up, in the, up to this point in the story, uh, Judah really hasn't been mentioned much of all in the story of Jacob's sons and in the context of being a brother of, of Joseph. He's not stood out in any way whatsoever. Uh, he's not been sort of marked out as this heroic figure, this superhero in the story. No, in fact, it's the opposite. Judah, you recall from chapter 37, the first chapter that dealt with Jacob's sons and Joseph in particular, uh, Judah was the brother who convinced his other brothers. You know, instead of putting him to death because we just can't stand this little runt, this little favorite of dad, you know what? We should profit. We should profit off of him. And so he's the one who said, let's sell him to some traders into slavery. And they got the going rate of the day I mentioned way back when uh, for a slave. So instead of being a hero, he was, uh, he was an anti-hero, right? Uh, instead of being a good guy, he's a bad guy. He wants to profit off of his brother's slavery and the plan that his brothers had hatched to get rid of him. But here he is. Judah stands up. He's the solution to the conundrum that they are all stuck in. On the one hand, there's a famine of bread, 
And if the sons of Jacob go down to Egypt without Benjamin, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen? If they all go back down, they leave Jacob and Benjamin in the promised land, the ten brothers go down to Egypt to get bread, what's going to happen? Oh, come on, people. Come on, now. Do we not have our coffee this morning? Come on. Why, why would they die? Why would they die? Well, first of all, Joseph's going to probably make them slaves, right? They're going to probably have, you know, en enough food to eat, have enough power to do slave labor, and they're eventually probably just going to die. What's going to happen to dad and brother back, back home? They're dead. There's no food. So on the one hand, they're in this conundrum. On the one hand, there's a famine, and if they go down and they don't do what Joseph is said to do by bringing Benjamin, they're all dead anyway. On the other hand, Jacob has this famine of hope. And if his sons go down to Egypt and they take Benjamin, Jacob reasons, we're, we're already dead. We're already dead. There's no hope for us. We have a saying for this. When you get stuck between a rock and a hard place, sometimes we say, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? There's nothing you can do about it. And that's how Jacob is thinking. We're dead. You guys go down there without taking Benjamin. I'm dead. And you're going to die too. And yet, or if you take him down there, we all know this is the Pharaoh's like right-hand man. We're dead. I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to die of the famine. You guys will die as, as slaves. It's, it's all over. He, he's, he's got zero, absolutely zero hope. Don't forget that brings us back to one of the things that we've been seeing in the patriarchs. This is a patriarch. This is a father. This is a guy in the, in the hall of faith, the hall of fame in Hebrews 11. This is one of the guys that we look up to. He's hopeless. The good news, of course, is that God uses him. God uses hopeless sinners. God uses people without faith. God uses weak people like you and me. Jacob's just another example of that. In the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He came not to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners, didn't he? That's in living color right here with Jacob, all the way back in the Old Testament. But Judah stands up. And he says, I'm going to be the pledge or the, the surety, the mediator, the one to bear the guilt, he tells his dad. I will be the one who will be guilty forever. If anything goes wrong with Benjamin, I will be held liable forever. I will be the one to stand between Joseph and Benjamin. And you begin to see in Judah, as we, as we will we'll see eventually in chapter 49, when Judah's role in the plan of salvation begins to come to light, but we begin to see a little bit of the gospel glimmer into the Old Testament here. The light of the gospel is beginning to shine through the clouds of despair and famine and hopelessness. Judah is the one that Jacob is going to say in chapter 49, he's going to prophesy what God's word is about him. This, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning that the line of Judah is going to be the line of the kings of Israel. Nor the ruler of staff from, be, from between his feet. That's a, that's a euphemism for his genitals, meaning his seed, meaning the seed of the woman is going to come from him. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his full to the vine and his donkey's cult to the choice vine. What did Jesus do on Palm Sunday? What did he do on Palm Sunday? 
he took that colt that had been tied up and told his disciples to take it and tell the owner of it the Lord has need and he rides into Jerusalem to die as that king, as that seed of Judah. See, our story brings us out of the famine not by means of works or wisdom, but by means of the promise of the gospel. Judah is that promise. Judah is the gospel. Judah is the type of Jesus Christ. He's the pledge of this new and greater covenant that's to come. He's the mediator between, humanly speaking, God, the Pharaoh, Joseph, who has the power of the Pharaoh of life and death, and man, right? He's the mediator here. He's the one who's going to bear the guilt, he tells his father. But as a picture of one who bears the guilt of our sins, of innumerable sins, of infinite sins. He's the one to stand not between Joseph and Benjamin, but between God and us, who shields us not from a wrath of a Pharaoh, but the wrath of God. He stands between us and the devil, Satan, and his accusations, shielding us from them. So the brothers leave with Benjamin, notice. The father, their father blesses them. He prays that God Almighty, El Shaddai, would be with them and bless them. And they take this present, notice, they take this present uh, with them. Judah, uh, uh, Jacob says, take sort of this list of, of choice things from the promised land down there. Does that sound familiar at all from the story of, of Jacob? Taking gifts to someone that you think is angry with you? This has been Jacob's strategy before, hasn't it? He takes all these gifts and all these presents to try to butter up his brother Esau uh, when he saw Esau and his army, his men, coming towards him back in chapter 33. So this is sort of the modus operandi of, uh, of, of Jacob, is to sort of uh, use gifts and presents and bribes to get people into favor. And it's interesting, just as a quick aside, it's interesting that the list of the gifts, the things here uh, that they take with them, uh, there in verse number, uh, what is it, verse 11 uh, balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, and almonds. It's not the exact same list, but it's a very similar list to the things that those Midianite, Ishmaelite traders, that they were taking down to Egypt when uh, Judah said, let's profit from getting rid of him, and they sold him to those Midianites uh, into slavery. So what's the irony is the, the tables have been turned here. Joseph once went down with these gifts, as a slave, and now they are sort of retracing the steps of their brother in his footsteps. They are at the whim and will of, uh, of Joseph down there. And so they arose. They go down to Egypt. They stand before Joseph. So here is the pinnacle of the drama. What's going to happen? How is Joseph going to react to them coming down again? Will Israel, with a line of promise that God himself has promised, will it continue? Will God's promise of salvation, will it cease? Joseph sees his brothers coming down. And Benjamin with them. And his reaction is astonishing. Bring the men into the house. And slaughter an animal. And make ready. The men are to dine with me at noon. 
completely contrary to Jacob's expectations, isn't it? Jacob was hopeless, but God, with God there's hope. I mean, here, here's this patriarch, the line through which the promises come, who has zero hope, but yet God's promise will stand. And so Joseph sees the brothers after all that had been done to him. After all those years of suffering unjust, uh, 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 unjustly, injustice, he sees. He says to make ready, slaughter an animal. They're going to feast with me, verse 16, at noon. And so what Joseph does is an overabundance of grace. And, but yet, notice the brothers also lack faith here. They interpret this action as an omen of death. Verse 18, they were afraid. They were afraid. Twenty years earlier, think of the fear that Joseph must have had when he was put down into that waterless pit. They put a cover over it, and they went off and had their lunch. But, and, and he was at the complete women wish and will of his brothers. And now again, the table has been turned. They're in fear. They think they're dead. And notice their, 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 their guilty consciences begin to bubble up. They thought Joseph wanted his money back. But especially they thought they want, uh, he wanted them as slaves. And so they, they plead their case to the steward, the servant of the house, who responds, don't be afraid, peace to you. They've been invited to, into Joseph's house. There's a feast being prepared. They've been reassured and then Simeon is brought out of captivity or wherever he was put as a hostage. All is well. All is well with these sinners, with these miserable offenders. All is well with them. Joseph arrives and they present their present. They bow their heads to the earth just as Joseph once dreamed uh, in chapter 37. Uh, they humbly prostrate themselves before Joseph Joseph's eyes are fixated upon Benjamin. And he exclaims, God be gracious to you, my son, verse 29. But Joseph rushes out, strangely, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. What a picture we have of here, forgiveness. The forgiveness that we receive from God himself. Whom the psalmist describes saying, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath, the psalm says of God. And they're experiencing that in a human way through Joseph. Then they feasted, notice. And it's interesting, the phrase says, they, here in the ESV, verse 34, they drank and were merry with him. Literally, it says they drank and they got drunk. Now, that's used in two senses in the Old Testament, and here it's meaning that they had their fill, they were satisfied, and uh, they were merry, as the ESV says, more of a sort of a dynamic equivalent that they were merry with him, uh, they got drunk, not uh, in the sense of sinfulness, but uh, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. 
Kids, I asked you again, what does it mean? What, how, do you, how does it make you feel to know that you're a sinner but that Jesus forgives you for sins? And uh, there you go, yeah. There you go. Emmanuel, you're the man. <laughs> Happy, right? That's how they felt. Wow. After all this, look what he's doing for us. Why is he treating us like this? Because he's a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're experiencing the forgiveness that can only come to us from God. And Joseph's forgiveness is signified outwardly in this feast. That's the means that God uses to show his forgiveness and his mercy. And this, and this feast is the means that he uses to preserve them. He gives them food. Uh, he gives them more food. They go off back to their father. And, and eventually we'll see that he comes down too. This feasting image is so important in the Old Testament. So important to communicate to us the forgiveness that we have with God, uh, the fellowship that we, that we have with God. He forgives us and he has fellowship with us. The God of the Bible doesn't just forgive us and sort of wipe his hands clean and, and let you and I go off on our own and do what we want. He, he, he forgives us so that he might have fellowship with us. He wipes the slate clean so that we can then approach him without any fear as we pray this morning. With no fear before the righteous judgment seat of God. To stand before God, not in fear, but in faith. Not afraid of God, but full of awe and wonder and joy that this God would have fellowship with this sinner. And so here's Joseph giving a feast and signifying and showing in a tangible way, an outward way, the forgiveness and the fellowship that we have with God. When Abraham met those three strangers at his tent, what did he do? When Abraham, those three strangers came to his tent, what, what did they do? They had a, they had a, they had a feast, right? they had a meal, they had fellowship together. When Moses and the 70 elders went up on top of the mountain, uh, the Mount of Sinai, on behalf of all the people, what did they do up there? They ate. They ate. The prophets used the imagery of eating with God. As, a, as an image of salvation itself that's to come. The prophet Isaiah said, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. I don't know how refined and aged our wine is, but this is just a sign of that feast to come. Amen? <laughs> The Lord, though, right? The Lord gives us uh, the real deal. He will swallow up on this mountain uh, and the, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Notice the feast is meant to be a sign of this, that God wipes away tears from our eyes. The reproach of his people will be taken away forever. The feasting with God is meant to be a sign to us of having fellowship with God. And so when this God of the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a feast to come upon a mountain, uh, that God, when he entered this world, when he touched this earth, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when the, the, the one that Judah was a picture of as a mediator, the one that Joseph was a picture of as a forgiving Savior, when that God entered this world, our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom did he eat and drink? What was he so notorious for? Who did he eat and drink with? Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners, like the lowest of the low in Israelite society. 
tax collectors who are traitors, and sinners, which was a, a technical class of those who had no fellowship, had no rights to the temple, to the sacrifices, to praying, to anything. They were unclean. They were unworthy. Jesus came to this earth to have fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a., you know, i.e., translated into whatever kind of a sinner you are. That's the kind of person he came for, you. And when he left this world, he left his disciples, of course, to go out and preach the gospel, but he left them also with a meal, didn't he? He left them with a meal. Why? Because this meal that we have in front of us, which is just a small little token, it's a picture to us of salvation itself. Forgiveness and fellowship with God. That just as Joseph sees his brothers coming, Jesus rushes out and welcomes us, forgives us, washes us, clothes us, just like they were clothed and washed. And from his own table, feeds, feeds us. This little small portion this morning is a pledge to what you and me of a feast that's to come, in which we will have the, the reality of forgiveness and fellowship with God. We'll see him face to face. He will wipe away our tears from our eyes. Revelation number nine, chapter number 19 says uh, that there was this great voice in heaven that John saw, the, the sound of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, and he heard this being cried out in heaven, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If I can summarize our chapter, really the, the whole story of Joseph, but this chapter especially this morning, it would be this, that life, life is a famine but God offers you a place at his feast. Life is a famine. It's a hope of sin, of just all the bleakness that you and I feel in our hearts. But it's God who offers us a place at his feast. So come this morning. Come as a sinner. Come to this table and with faith receive all the things that the, the bread and wine are meant to picture to you. Forgiveness of sins. Fellowship forever with Almighty God. Let's pray.